Um, last week, we really focused on verse 13 and this idea um, of bearing with one another and forgiving one another and doing these things as Christ has done them for us. And if you were here, you'll recall that um, I committed one of the ultimate preaching transgressions um, by opening my message with a grammar lesson. I mean, this is once we get past the review, but when I really started to deal with last week's text, that's how I started it. And every, uh, every good teacher knows whatever else you do, you have to capture your audience's attention first. And I think probably, I'm not one, but I'm guessing every grammar teacher knows that they won't be remembered past June 3rd or 4th. So I felt a little silly after the fact for doing that, but I needed to impress upon us with as much efficacy as possible that <clears throat> demanding your personal sovereignty is antithetical to the gospel. And it was important to me when I noticed that that verb for bear with one another only works in the sense that it is both something you are doing and something you are doing to yourself. It became so important to me to communicate that because to a certain degree, what the Bible is telling you is that bearing, bearing with someone else means becoming in, in, in a way of speaking or in a way of thinking about it, becoming a willing participant in your own being overlooked, trodden upon, used, ripped off, and injured. <clears throat> but you've got to be careful with that, right? Because it's a hop, skip, and a jump from thinking wrongly that, that, that asceticism and self-injury are noble. Well, we covered that in chapter 2. This idea that, that hypocritical, um, like scraping humility and self-deprecation. These things are not noble. That there's nothing uh, particularly Christian about inviting injury to yourself and then letting everybody know how wounded you are. Um, if, if you go around broadcasting your injuries, in fact, like soliciting admiration and sympathy from other Christians, no matter how covertly you do it, I think you're a hypocrite. I think when I do it, I'm a hypocrite. And I think we all do it. Yeah. Right? Because we're all hypocrites. So <laughs> let's not. What else do I have here for this morning? <laughs> this, is not, this is not the same uh, as the call that victim equals virtue, which is so popular in our culture. In fact, I would say that's the currency that our culture trades in, is figure out how you're a victim so that you can let everybody know that you're virtuous. And if you can't, then you're an oppressor, right? That's not new to all of you, is it? Okay, I'm just making sure. I don't. I assume that people know things, and then I get home sometimes, and I find out that I should not have assumed that people 
know that. So even though you've, some of you have just confidently said, no, that's not new to me, <clears throat> let me um, extemporaneously illustrate what it is that I'm talking about. When I was in high school, this is obviously anecdotal, so it's not of that much use. This, I'm not using the Socratic method here. I'm just telling you what my experience was. When I was in high school, I was not particularly aware that I was that I was a racist oppressor. That's not something I, I found out until seven, eight years ago, uh, really started to be revealed to me by other white people that I'm a racist oppressor. Um, I don't remember ever racially oppressing anybody, but that's where our culture has decided that I am. Um, that happens because people need to make themselves a victim in order so that they can be virtuous. Do you understand? I didn't, I'm not a racist oppressor. I've become one by contrast because I'm unwilling to be a victim. That's dangerous. I've never owned another human being. I've mistreated many, but not in the like 1861 sense. And not on the basis of the color of anybody's skin, sexual preference, or gender ideology. It's a dangerous thing for a culture to do. How much less then should the church engage in that kind of nonsense? So here I would say, if you encounter a situation where the church is embracing or engaging social justice to that degree, where they are uh, assigning guilt for racial oppression on the basis of the color of somebody's skin, you've now gotten as far away from the gospel as almost you can. And that church should be rejected wholesale. Any preacher who preaches that should be rejected wholesale. And that's a brave thing to say when you're a white guy. That was virtue signaling. <laughs> Bearing with one another means <clears throat> when someone does not remember to treat you with the dignity and respect that you deserve as an image bearer of God, which I believe is the basis uh, for, for the dignity and respect that we are owed. You are created in the image of God. That means you are worth something and should be treated like an, a person who carries the image of God. When you are not, when someone forgets to treat you with that dignity and respect, bearing with them means you do not stop the presses and demand they repent every time it happens. Rather, you receive the abuse, the injury, and the mistreatment with such grace that in our culture, I'm going to start over. Anytime I stop listening to myself, I assume some of you have stopped listening as well. Rather than stopping the presses and demanding that somebody repent because of the way that they've treated you, when you realize that you've been mistreated, you should receive it with such grace that a good sociologist and a good psychologist would tell you that you're codependent. That's how much grace we're supposed to receive it with. But I would say we should do it without becoming codependent. We don't have time for me to explain that. 
uh, <clears throat> agree or disagree, we constantly wound one another. Okay, all right. We are on the same page. Uh, and, and we wound one another. You might agree. Let me, let me do this. Let me say it differently, and then I bet everybody will agree. We wound one another because we are clumsy, bumbling, thoughtless, selfless jerks. It's not acceptable, right? And we're not saying, yay. But it is reality. And so we want to operate in reality. So when you incidentally injure another person by your th like thoughtlessness, no, let's do it this way. When you are, this is so much better, when you are incidentally injured by another thoughtless person, the biblical response, the Christian response, what I've suggested is, the response is to just let it go. And depending on how reformed you are, <laughs> will determine how much you think I'm a heretic right now. <laughs> we looked at Mark eleven twenty five, where Jesus says, uh, when you stand praying, if you remember that someone has sinned against you, forgive them. So that's what we're supposed to do, right? And I even said last week, don't work harder at evading this call of the scriptures than you do at implementing it. Don't come up with all the reasons why you don't have to forgive this time. This particular offense was so bad you don't have to let it go. I said, what if we just obey the scriptures and then kind of see what God does? All right. How do we do that? <laughs> How is it possible? Aren't we just inviting further abuse? Oh, you're going to love this next one. Aren't we just asking to become someone's doormat if we do that? And furthermore, how is it God honoring? God hates sin, doesn't he? So don't we have a duty and an obligation, therefore, when somebody sins to make sure that they know about it and repent? Come on now. How is it okay for us to allow people to trample on us when what they are doing is something that God hates? Well, I would say we aren't encouraging others to sin against us, and we certainly shouldn't, right? And I said last week, I do believe there's a difference between responding to an incidental failure to honor you, you, you from someone else and a pattern of behavior where somebody is just like on repeat behaving badly. I'm not suggesting we encourage others to sin against us. I'm encouraging us to, to not take it so personally. Now, this will be really helpful to you. This is why I preach like a bricklayer, right? Instead of like I'm laying pavement. I can't say everything in one Sunday. And so when I get accused of not dealing with the text, I'm slowly learning to ask, did you come for more than one week? Did you like listen for more than one sermon at a time? Because these things, they, they layer on top of one. I'm not suggesting that we allow people to sin against us and encourage them to do so. I'm suggesting we don't take it personally. What makes sin so evil is not that it is essentially against us. Right? What makes it evil is that it is essentially 
against God. So consider David's confession. <clears throat> if you open your Bible and look at Psalm 51, you don't have to, but believe me when I tell you this is true. It'll say, the heading will say, how far is it going to roll? You never know. I mean, that could have gone on for a minute. So praise Jesus. I think she caught it with her foot. Um, if you look at Psalm 51, the heading will say, David's prayer after Nathan the prophet had confronted him when he had gone into Bathsheba, right? So here's what verse four of Psalm 51 says. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And he's directing that at God. And here's where in my humanity, I say, hmm, a pregnant Bathsheba and a dead Uriah might disagree with you there, David, when you say against God and God only have you sinned. But the scripture makes it clear. Sin is always against God, first and foremost, because God is the most right. Now, you can be right and therefore someone can wrong you. But you'll never be as right as God, and therefore you will never be the first recipient of that wrong. You are always, at, at most, the second one. I'm sorry, at, would it be at most or at least? If God is first, you are at best second. How's that? When someone sins against you, the level of indignation that you experience tells you a great deal about what you believe you are guilty of in God's eyes. <laughs> When someone sins against you, the level of indignation you feel in that moment tells you you are looking at something about yourself. What you're being told is this is how much you really believe God has forgiven. So if someone sins against you and you're like, oh man, that's frustrating. I think maybe you believe you've been forgiven a lot. When someone sins against you and the whole church has got to stop and we've got to excommunicate them because you got your feelings hurt, I think maybe you don't think you've been forgiven that much. If we're outraged and resentful, I think our, our primary concern is probably for our, our own glory, right? Let's pause for a brief word from our sponsor. <laughs> so listen to Matthew 18, 23. I bet you've heard this before. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, I'll paraphrase a little bit. <clears throat> one debtor was brought to him who owed him Warren Buffett levels of money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Warren Buffett levels of debt. Imagine if you're one of these Dave Ramsey people that's already paid off your house. I'm sorry, this illustration is going to fail you for the rest of us. Imagine you got a phone call tomorrow from your mortgage holder and they said, great news. You've been randomly chosen to have your mortgage forgiven. Would you be grateful? I would be looking for the hook, I'll be honest, because I'm kind of a conspiracy guy. But yeah, I'd be super grateful. 
Listen, listen to what this guy did. When that servant left the master's presence, he went out, <laughs> found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred bucks. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, because you asked me to. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So the means by which the Bible suggests that you accomplish this forbearance and forgiveness in Colossians 3.13 is by recalling how freely Jesus forgave you. That's effective. Remembering what Jesus has done for you will help you to do the same for other people. The alternative, it seems, is that you think yourself more glorious than God and therefore you must not forgive sinners. Now, if you're clever, <clears throat> and I think most of you are, you've already thought of a loophole. And you like you heard it, even though you weren't reading along, you heard it in verse 29 of Matthew 18, where his fellow servant fell down on his knees and pleaded with him, uh, have patience with me and I will pay you. So the debtor to the debtor who had just been forgiven all the debt, the debtor to that guy uh, asks for patience and promises to pay back what's owed. And, and your loophole is, well, James, you're saying without them asking, we have to forgive them. Well, you've, you've nodded yourself up in the text, pastor. You're not as clever as you think. The whole point is that the one still owed a debt had already been forgiven a far greater debt. He should have... He should have immediately gone and found anybody that owed him and forgiven them their debts. That's the point. So also will my heavenly father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So being forgiven is supposed to put us in a forgiving frame of mind. So we're to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then we're called to bear with one another, forgiving one another, just as Christ has forgiven us. And then comes verse 14. So Colossians 3, 14, look, look at that. <coughs> Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So these were garments, right? These were clothes that we were supposed to be putting on. Uh, the final garment, the one most visible that, that goes on above all the others is love. And I don't remember from whom I first heard that love is a verb. I know it was a little too late for me to gain that knowledge. Let me just share <clears throat> at the risk of, uh, it, it, on average, these sermons get downloaded around 140 times. 
And I don't think it's all of you listening to them twice after you leave here. Uh, so I don't know, I just don't know who out there in the wide world of the internet is listening to these. So I always feel a little bit nervous when I start sharing personal testimony. But at risk of hurting her feelings, let me give this example. And this might also help the teenagers in the room. I don't remember from whom I first heard that love is a verb. But I know it was too late by the time I heard it because I'd already experienced that ebb and flow of emotion, which all teenagers call love and frustrated. I mean, more than one young lady. I had hair back then. Frustrated more than one young lady whose father didn't know any better than to let me hang around his daughter. So I saw the Leonardo DiCaprio, Claire Danes portrayal of Romeo and Juliet, and I heard the angsty John Resnick singing about wanting to be invisible in the Goo Goo Dolls song, Iris, and experienced all the corresponding sentimental uh, uh, melancholy produced by the raging hormones of an adolescent in the context of experiencing love culture as a teenager. By the time Donna Lewis whispered her way into my radio in 1996 while I was driving Peggy to Papio Fun Park after our band got done playing a gig to dozens of adoring fans. <laughs> I had a really solid grasp on what love was. I did. Sadly, rather than loving each other always forever, like Donna Lewis's Bob suggested our two-year romance ended dramatically with her gaining the attention of an older lifeguard at work. I comforted uh, my wrecked heart when she married him two weeks after we broke up by realizing that this was all a desperate attempt on her part to escape her insane parents. And then I comforted myself by congratulating myself that I wasn't dumb enough to fall into that trap. <laughs> Equally sadly, one of the consequences of assigning emotional instability, sentimental feelings, and butterflies in the stomach one of the consequences of assigning those things with the name love is that once those feelings are met with the inevitable doom of teenage thoughtlessness, you are not likely to experience those feelings much again for the rest of your life. You get one shot to be in love like you are the first time. The good news is if you ask a couple <laughs> like Matt and Hillary, who got together in third grade and <laughs> somehow managed to make it to 21, 22 years of marriage. Yeah. <laughs> They'll tell you that we tend to crush those sentimental feelings in one another regardless. Right? If you stay together or you break up. If love is a feeling, most marriages experience love spastically. And this is a big part of the reason why so many marriages don't last till the death of the bride or the groom. Instead, most marriages that, that end, end when the feelings die. 
whenever that happens. A lot of people suggest this is around the seven-year mark. So I think I was 21. Again, I don't remember from whom, but I think I was 21 when I learned that love is a verb. Love is not something you feel, it is something you do. And that's helpful, right? I was 33 when I was wrestling with Romans 12, 9 and 10. Here's Romans 12, 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, the, the New American Standard Bible says it a little bit differently than the ESV. And that was the text I was studying, was the NASB. So listen to this. Love must be free from hypocrisy. Detest what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Now, I know it's dumb if you're like a teenager and you can't imagine spending your time doing something like this. But I used to get paid like it was my full time job to study the text, try to make sense of it and be able to explain it to other people. So that's what I was doing. And it was over the period of a few days as I was trying to figure out what hypocritical love was that I discovered my definition for love. The text, goodness, the text demands that love not be fraudulent. Not Colossians 3.14, Romans 12.9. Let love be without hypocrisy. I already knew and had known for 12 years by this point that love is a willful action. It's not inadvertent. It's not a reflex. Love is also not evil, requires devotion, requires preference, like love requires honoring its target. You tracking? Yeah. Okay. So I started constructing my love definition like this. Hypocritical love, false love, fraudulent love, manipulative love. Um, this must also be a willful action. Is that okay? So if it's an action, why would it be confused with love? How can you say let love be without hypocrisy? If it's a willful action, why would it be confused with love? Don't they look like two different things? Love and hypocritical love? Well, no, because hypocrisy, acting, lying, I mean, that means it's accompanied by deception. Hypocritical love is mask wearing. It's pretending. If, if hypocrisy is portraying one thing while you're actually another, then hypocritical love has the appearance of love. It wears a mask that looks like love, but it's a lie. What does it do? Well, what do all lies do? What do all lies? All lies serve the liar. Right? I mean, it's hard to see you guys, so it'd be helpful if I could hear you. All lies serve the liar. Yes. Okay, there we go. <clears throat> hypocritical love then serves me if I'm engaging in it. And here's how I define hypocritical or counterfeit love then. Hypocritical love is an act of the will accompanied by deception designed to do myself good at somebody else's expense. How many times have you done that? I love you, 
And then the action you do is a deceptive thing designed to get something from them for yourself. That's not love. So as I was wrestling with this, I inadvertently, by contrast, realized what love is. Love is an act of the will. You have to decide to do it. It's not reflexive. Love is accompanied by emotion because I hated, I refused this idea that uh, love's an action and then you'd meet these people who would like robotically go through the motions of whatever they thought would be an expression of love. No, I needed Romeo and Juliet and, and the Goo Goo Dolls and all this stuff from my youth to still have some meaning. So I like, I wanted my emotions to be engaged in love. And then I realized you can't really love without your emotions being engaged because anytime you want to do something, your emotions are involved. So love is an act of the will. Love is accompanied by emotion. The design must be to do good to the target of your love and not yourself. And if, if like, an act of the will designed to do somebody else good doesn't cost you anything, then it's not worth very much, right? So love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do somebody else good at your own expense. And that's way too complicated and nobody can ever remember it except that I've said it so many dozens and dozens of times that especially if you were in youth group with me, like 10 years ago until, and you've been with me since, then you know. As soon as I say, hey, what's love? You're like, act of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do somebody else good at your own expense. Right, Grace? <laughs> then you cannot love steak, music, cookies, or your car. <laughs> love is not a feeling you get when you meet somebody. Love is not what you experience when somebody is attractive to you. And now, like all good preachers, I've ruined everything. <laughs> right? I've probably ruined romance, emotional adventure, your favorite song, movie, and book. Because I've suggested that love is not sensational enough to be blamed for all the bad decisions humanity would like to blame it for. But I think Colossians 3.14 will be far better understood and implemented if we actually know what love is. If we allow the culture to define love, how on earth do you put Colossians 3.14 into action? Above all these, put on sentimental feelings. Well, that doesn't work. Above all these... Feel a certain way towards one another. Well, what happens if you don't? Well, that's not going to work. Bearing with someone usually does involve feeling a certain kind of way towards them, but it isn't warm and fuzzy, right? Right? Okay. So let's review this passage we've been working through for the last month, starting back at verse 5. Put to death, therefore... Sexual immorality and pure passion, evil desire, covetousness, and all other types of idolatry. And he says, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. So these are things that we're taking off. These are things that we're putting away. These are clothes that don't fit. Put away lying. And then in verse 10, put on the new self. We don't segregate ourselves based on anything external. That's verse 11. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We bear with one another, forgiving one another as Christ 
forgave us. This is stuff that we put on. These are the new clothes that go along with the new heart of a Christian. And then he says, uh, above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the outer garment of the Christian's new clothes is love. So here's what we do. This week, when the Holy Spirit brings somebody to mind, and I apologize in advance if it's not who you're hoping, but when the Holy Spirit brings somebody to mind, that you need to, above all these, put on love toward. As the Holy Spirit does from time to time, ask yourself, how can you love them? What action can I take with my emotions engaged that does them some good while I bear the expense? I hope and pray for your sake it is somebody that, that you're very fond of. Because it's hard when it's not. Right? Think about this with me. How does God display love to you? We're almost done. How does God display love to you? <clears throat> oh, we've got so many answers, right? Uh, the last time you prayed, and you, the, the answer was affirmative, and yes, and he blessed you. Those experiences, I, we often think, this is God loving me. Careful. Careful. Because if that's God loving you, what is it when the answer is no? How does God love you? Let me take you to the cross right now. Who's hanging there on the cross? Prior to the burial and the resurrection. How did it happen that the son of God would be so poorly treated? What did he do? That put him on that cross. He hangs there. He's bleeding. He's bruised. His face is disfigured to the point where he is almost unrecognizable to those who knew him best. Why didn't God intervene? Why, where, where were the angels? Why didn't they get involved in protecting the most precious being that ever walked the earth? The one who did nothing wrong. Well, maybe, maybe they didn't interfere. Maybe God didn't interfere because love is an act of the will. Is it God's will that you have a restless desire to be in fellowship with him? And maybe you haven't put your finger on this yet. But that restlessness that's in you, especially if you're a young person, you, you, if God gives you three decades from right now, what you're going to do is slowly discover over time that what I'm about to say is true. That desire and that restlessness within you will not be satisfied by anything other than you being in relationship with your creator because he built us for fellowship. He made us to be in fellowship with him. He made us to worship him, which means he gave our worship enough weight that he can feel it when it happens. 
What on earth can bear the weight of your worship if that's how heavy it is? Not another person, not another sinner. Why don't you worship God? Why can't you worship God? Come on, you know. You know, nobody has to tell you. Nobody has to catch you doing it. You know your sin. And, and many times your sin finds you out, doesn't it? These things that you do in private, there's like, you can't draw a direct line, but you get uncomfortable later on after you've done the thing and you're like, hmm, this seems like it might be consequences for some of that evil back there. You know your sin. You know that it produces in you anxiety and more restlessness and fear and shame and guilt. Maybe the Son of God hung on that cross because he had a will to love you. Is it his will that in spite of your sinful nature, you have this nagging feeling that you are made for more than this world has to offer? Is it his will that when you pray, you are heard? Because I assure you, if it's not his will, you will never be heard. You cannot cross the chasm that sin has created between you and your creator. Is it possible that God's will for the relationship between creature and creator, is it possible that his will is for that relationship to be restored? That which you have broken by sin, is it possible that God wants to, to, to re, reattach the lines? Is it possible that God's will is for many sinners to be redeemed? What if the only way for you to be redeemed is for someone besides you to pay the price for your evil? What if the only way for you to be put back into relationship with God is for someone to provide the obedience you have failed your entire life to provide? What if God loved you enough to do that? In spite of your sin in spite of your shame, in spite of your guilt, loved you. Act of the will, accompanied by emotion, designed to do you good at his expense. Go to the cross. See him there, hanging there, nailed to it, fixed to it, held there not by your sin, but by his love for you. Refusing to come down so that he could ransom you from the devil's grip and from the grip of your sin and draw you into the grip of his wonderful grace. What if God loved you enough to do that? What if Jesus' will was to be the creature in place of you who was obedient? What if Jesus' will was to be the atonement, the substitution for your sin? How could he do that? How could he do that? Well, he'd have to become a man. Because God can't die for sinners. A person has to die. He would have to do breathtaking good works in place of your breathtaking selfishness. He would have to suffer your punishment for you. He would have to suffer death for you. So he hung on the cursed tree, having become a curse in your place. And it was an act of his will. He wept for you. Before he ever got to the cross, at least twice, he stood outside Jerusalem once and he wept over all the lost sinners in that town. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would 
gather you under my wings like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. Yeah, his emotions were engaged. It was not a robotic act of service and subservience to the Father. Jesus is interested in having you. And not because you're so fantastic, because he is. And because he knows what you were created for. And he knows what it must be like for you to be out of fellowship when you were designed to be in fellowship. So he ransomed you. His act was accompanied by genuine interest and emotion. And his act accomplished your redemption. It paid for you and it cost him everything. In his humanity, it cost him his life. Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do somebody else good at your own expense. So Paul says, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What the Bible is calling Christians to do above all things is, listen, spend yourself to bless other people. You're not going to save anybody. Jesus handles that. But you can bless somebody. Put on love at work, at home, at school, when somebody's throwing a tantrum. Like put on love. Bless them. Bear with them. Be Jesus to them. And the culture, brothers and sisters, I believe this with my whole heart. If we do this, if the church does this, the culture will be dramatically impacted. Amen?